The Institute of Directors professional development programmes equip learners with the knowledge, skills and mindset to be enterprising and innovative, enabling organisations to become more productive and competitive. The IOD's programmes ensure directors develop an awareness of their interpersonal skills, legal and business knowledge, financial acumen, ethical questioning, decision-making abilities and the highest standards of professional conduct. The IOD is the only institute in the world to offer internationally recognised qualifications designed by directors for directors under Royal Charter. For more information on IOD training, visit iod.com today. Welcome to the Institute of Directors, Leaders and Business podcast, a podcast where we interview directors from all over the UK about their careers and business. I'm your host, Marlene Lowe, founder and director of Tichborne Promotions and long-term IOD member. Dr. Helen Irwood is chairman at ESPL Regulatory Consulting. Today, she gives us insights into what it means to work in regulatory affairs for the pharmaceutical and medical device industries. She demystifies what it means to be a scientist in a rainbow of excitement where no two days are the same. Um, hi, I'm Helen Irwood and I live in the Shetland Islands on the North Mainland in a very old house that was built in 1550 and, um, and I, I have a flock of sheep. Excellent. <laughs> now tell us a bit about your day job, Helen. Um, during the day, I am the chairman of um, ESPL Regulatory Consulting, part of Embedded Signal Processing Limited, which started off in 1996 as an electronics company founded by my husband and I when he got fed up with teaching at university and decided to do um, electronics, which was his passion, embedded signal processing for his day job. Um, and um, I've been uh, chairman for quite a long time. And the company was first founded electronically in 1996, but became a regulatory consultancy in 2000. So this is our 21st year. Wow. Okay, so for those of us that didn't quite understand all of that of what it means of what you do in the real world, like right. what, what actually means, what, what, do, what is it that you do? Okay, when a new medicine or a new medical device is developed by a pharmaceutical mm -hmm. or a medical device company, um, you can't put it on the market and prescribe it for patients unless you've got a license or a CE mark, depending on whether it's mm -hmm. a medicine or a medical device. And what we do is work with the pharmaceutical and the medical device industry to help them work their way through the regulatory requirements uh, for getting a license. And then we also review um, submissions before they go in. We help people with the strategy. We liaise with ministries of health all around the world, talking about the different regulatory agencies about what's needed and the data requirements and so on. So we are a bunch of virtually um, placed scientists um, <laughs> working our way through the regulations for people. Wow, that, that sounds intense. Oh, it's intense, but it's fantastic. I've been doing this for 35 years. And I never get bored with it. Every day is different. Every day, you know, <laughs> there's an excitement of something you know, and, and new, new technologies come along and people say, oh, can you have a look at this? And you go, oh, that's going to make a difference, you know, in a particular <laughs> area. So, yeah, and we cover everything from radioactive drugs at one end. That's the 
pretty high tech and stem cell therapy and other advanced therapies down to over the counter medicines, you know, the next flavor of a cough cold uh, drink for next yeah. winter. So, yeah. So it's, wow. it's a rainbow of, I'm going to say this, it's going to sound very corny. It's a rainbow of excitement, actually, I think. <laughs> never, 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 never. I would never have the same day ever. And I never get bored with it. Now, if only we could all say our jobs are a rainbow of excitement. That is such a good way of saying it. <laughs> and, and, and another way, somebody described the other day that what, part of our role is to relieve the constipation of the regulatory agency. <laughs> another way of looking at it. <laughs> that, that's certainly one way. <laughs> I, but I actually, I, I, in my experience, I haven't ever come across that many constipated regulatory agencies. So generally, they are they are they ha they share the same excitement. They want to yeah. get new products in to treat rare and common and you know important diseases, mm. um, and they want to do it uh, to make sure that everything is safe, has the right quality, and and is actually backed up with with the right clinical data. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So tell us a bit about your backstory. How did you get into this industry? What, what's driven you? Okay. Um, I, I was born and, uh, as an army baby and I mm -hmm. eventually ended up in the Highlands and I went to Edinburgh University and I studied medical microbiology because I was always wow. fascinated with the world of things you can't see that are growing all over you. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that the human body is a zoo which always fascinated me. And um, and then I decided uh, I did a, a PhD and I, at Nottingham at Queen's Medical Centre uh, in the med school there. And then I went on to um, industry. So I decided I wanted to go into industry. And I started off with Beecham's with antibiotics, of course, because I'm a mm -hmm. microbiologist and then moved on to ICI, which then became AstraZeneca. And then um, I've also worked with uh, what is now Sanofi Aventis and, and what is now um, GlaxoSmithKline. So I had a, a, a healthy induction into regulatory affairs. I went from science right. to regulatory affairs after a couple of years in scientific, science in industry and then decided to do regulatory affairs. And I've never looked back. It's just been, you have your finger in every pie when you're working in regulatory affairs. So you work with the manufacturing site, you're working with the clinical trials team, you're working with the marketing guys, you're working with the research and development. So it's an, it's an exciting job, you know, mm. and I'm still here. So you said that um, you've always been fascinated by the things that you can't see. Where did that fascination come from? I don't know. I think it's a morbid interest in disease. <laughs> I think it is. It was a morbid interest in disease. Always been fascinated in how diseases work and food poisoning and so on. You know, my my brother who 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 has a propensity to eat anything, however old it is. You know, and he'll say, "Oh, oh well, I've got a, a you know I've got a bit of a stomach uh, upset," and I say, "Oh, look at my watch and go, well, when what did you eat and when did you last eat it?" <laughs> And, and well, it's probably and I work out which bug it might be. Wow. <laughs> I'm afraid I was always a bit nerdy from a microbiological point of view. So, uh, yeah, and I haven't lost it. Yeah. <laughs> so you grew up as an army baby. Um, what? How did that impact you for the rest of your life? Oh, um, I had a lot of schools and um, I wasn't at school in any one school for very long. So that meant I moved from school to school to school. So that me meant that I wasn't frightened of meeting people, you know, mm. and, and just being me. 
And, and I think that's held me in good stead. You know, I, I'm not intimidated when I meet somebody new at all. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in who they are and what they do and what makes them tick and so on. But um, it, yeah, it's made me more outgoing, I suppose, than I would have would have been. Yeah. And more resourceful. I think it's very hard to, to make friends and then move on and make friends and move on a lot. Yeah. And I think most yeah. people who've had an army life, army childhood like that will be able to relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And expats as well. Yeah. 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 So what are some of the values that have driven you through your life? Oh, yeah, what do we mean by values? Um, uh, honesty. Um, uh, I, I, I care about getting, I actually, in, in work, for example, I care about getting these products on the market. If I know that they're going to do, they're really actually going to do something very useful for a particular group of patients. And even, you know, even having a new flavor of a cough cold medicine, you know, if it makes it nicer for somebody who's got a rotten cold you know mm. it's worthwhile doing so uh, i'm i'm very socially minded i think i'm a uh, i'm probably a socialist at heart though nobody's actually labeled <laughs> me as such um and i believe that you know my, the team that work that i work with uh, they don't they have never worked for me they have always worked with me and i think that's mm. really important yeah, I think it's, I think um, you can't get anywhere in life. I always say in any company, the most important person is the person that cleans the toilets. Because if you, yeah. don't, if you don't have those infrastructures and you don't have those people supporting you, then, you know, life can be pretty horrible. You know, mm-hmm. so every team has um, cogs and wheels in it and each of those cogs and wheels matters. And I think and I've always said that to my team that that's, and that's how we've always operated. Yeah, that's so interesting. Just a sidebar: you are the only set you. You're only the second person I've ever heard in my life use that exact phrase, of the most important person being the cleaner or the person that cleans the toilets. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I people have to be valued, and they have to. The other thing that's really important when you're all working together is that people have to understand why they're doing something. I remember mm-hmm. years, years and years ago, or probably about. 30 years ago I was working on something when I was at ICI and we were having a problem getting some analytical data from the research and development guys and I actually went down to see the analyst and I sat with him and I said look your piece of information is really important and it's going to go in this application which is going to go right across the European Union and we need these data in order to complete this and this is why and he went wow I never realized that and I said what you're doing is really important and he said I never realized it was <laughs> so, and I got my data the next day <laughs> so, <How lovely. laughs> yeah, I think it's important that people understand why they're doing something and and you know what it what the outcome is likely to be and why it's important to uh, to whoever is going to receive the information yeah yeah so one thing that I've been curious about ever since I saw um, the invite come through for us to talk and what you mentioned before the interview started was that you are an employee-led company. Yes, we're an employee-owned company. We, uh, My husband, Tony, and my son, Chris, and I, we were a family business from 1996 until 2019. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, my husband wanted to retire and I'm going to retire in about five years time. 
and we had a, a really lovely team and we thought, well, okay, what do we do with the business in terms of succession planning? <clears throat> now, Chris is very good at IT and finance and stuff like that, but he didn't really want to be the, the head of the company. And mm -hmm. um, we thought, well, we've got three options here. We, we close the business down. We're a small, we're an SME. Uh, we close it down and that obviously doesn't help because we've got lots of people who rely on us for work and who enjoy do what, doing what they do. We could sell out to a larger company, um, but I've seen that happen a few times where they buy the client list and they've been the employees. And, yeah. uh, and particularly because we are a virtual company and people are remotely located all over the place, um, that wouldn't work. And so we thought, uh, we thought, well, then why not offer it to the staff to say um, uh, a lot of them don't have the funds to do a management buyout. And so the easiest thing to do would be to do employee ownership transition. And the Scottish government, God bless them, are very good and very keen on employee ownership because they realise that companies like, like ours that are a bit out in the sticks, but doing international stuff, perhaps wouldn't, you know, family owned businesses perhaps wouldn't stay in the sticks, employing people in areas where employment might be a little bit difficult if there wasn't um, uh, an employee ownership type structure where, where then, you know, the people that are in the business continue to run the business. Mm. So, so I had a very interesting experience, you know, we, we became employee owned on the 5th of April 2019 and, and then I had to learn um, to step back and not make all the decisions. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been hard, like, because it, it's not hard in the sense of giving up that ownership, more changing your patterns. Yes, it's changing my patterns and delegating more, you know, and, and in the first few months, you know, um, um, I would I would still... I still tended to make decisions and people would be too frightened to say, no, we want to do it this way. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then, no, I, I, you know, it's worked really well. And uh, we have a managing director, Jason Collins, who joined the business um, about four years ago. And he, he's been absolutely brilliant. Uh, and we kind of brought him in uh, and we told him when we brought him in that we wanted to move to employee ownership. And he, he's been very keen to do that. Yeah. And so we consult with the with all of the the owners, the all of the staff on all of the key decisions that the business makes. So we have a board um, of three people and we have a trust of three people and they're different. And um, um, the board answers to the trust, which which uh, um, answers to the employees and, and it works well. What's the biggest change that you've seen in the business in this transition period? In, in in going from from uh, family owned to employee owned yeah um just in responsibility if you know what i mean um mm. um one of the things that we had to make you know i said to the staff you're going to take this on as employee owned you have got to take responsibility for the business as much as as much as i have and and mm. obviously the board and the trust will make sure that everything runs properly but everybody is is equally responsible and I had the most delightful experience um, about six months ago I was working with uh, with a graduate uh, one of our graduate trainees and it was Friday night and it was five o'clock and um, we, were, we had a deadline and it was going to take us another couple of hours to get stuff done and I said to him it's okay if you want to go now and he said to me no no this is my business too 
<laughs> and I thought, whoa, wow. that's amazing. That's giving me chills. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, whoa, that's my boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought, yeah, no, that was, I was just, wow, that's really impressive. Yeah. I think what strikes me as well is it's really giving people the opportunity that might not have had it before to know what it means to run a business yes, but yes. because you're doing it in solidarity you don't necessarily have the fear factor of being the one person or the two people together that are running a business you, you've got a community around you running a business yes when, when we have a major decision to make um, we're about to expand our business on the regulatory publishing side and um, that involved a significant investment of money in purchasing um, software and we're talking about software that costs over £20,000 um, mm. and uh, we took that to the, the company, the employees and said look no, this is what we're proposing to do, these are the pros, these are the cons, these are the implications and so on and so we have we we have all decided that this is what we're going to do yeah so that's great you you, you do feel um it's a mutual support group when you make a decision yeah yeah what have been some of the biggest challenges with the transition what me <laughs> stepping away and letting people do stuff <laughs> yes i think you know that's a <laughs> making sure that uh, making sure that i delegated um, keeping people informed and obviously building the infrastructure to make sure that everybody understands what we're doing and, and everybody understands why we're doing something. As far as clients and customers are concerned, they they weren't at all bothered about it. We did yeah. explain what we were doing. And in fact, the, the, we got a lot of positive feedback um, and, and we still, you know, we are certainly the only employee owned uh, regulatory consultancy in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not so sure that we're not the only employee-owned regulatory consultancy in most of Europe. It's a, it's mm. an unusual model. And then people are looking at us and going, "Ooh, that's an interesting idea." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what would be your advice to anyone that is listening, going, "Ooh, that's an interesting idea." What What would be your advice for them to start on that journey? Um, go and talk to Scottish uh, Scottish Enterprise and. Uh, and or the the UK business enterprise because they provided a huge amount of useful information things to think about and I know that Scottish enterprise are looking to ramp up their their uh, offering in terms of information for everybody and things to think about and different um, different um, YouTube they've got some YouTube um, uh, videos and presentations on employee ownership because there are different models of it that, mm. that you can implement so yeah get as much information as possible and then uh, talk about it as much as possible within the group you know because some people yeah. will, will be very uncertain and go oh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure about this you know is it going to make the business more unstable is it going to make the business more stable from our point of view you know it's it's going it's made it's made us more stable I think in terms of, you know, everybody knows that ultimately I want to retire and mm. we're developing the business so that everybody is running the business so that I, you know, eventually I'm going to be the retired wise old woman in the corner with a <laughs> wheel out occasionally to ask some questions, you know, so I, I can't see my, I'll retire, but I'll always be there for them if they, if they need help. Now I'd like to take you back to um, the 90s and making that decision to run your own business. Yes. 
Was that something that you always wanted to do or did it come as a surprise? Um, uh, a bit of both, really. I was working at, at Smith Klein Beecham, which then became Glaxo Smith Klein. And another regulatory consultancy approached me and said, if I was ever interested in going independent, they would be happy to have me as an associate. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, oh, that's a nice idea. And my husband had set up the electronics business and was running it. And he had realized, he said to me, I don't know why I didn't do this years ago, because he was enjoying <laughs> it so much. And we thought, you know, I could do this. So I, to be honest, I had six months worth of share options. And I thought, well, if I, if I, um, if things don't go right, I can always go back into the industry. And uh, GlaxoSmithKline, when I left, as it was then, uh, said to me, you know, we don't want to lose you. Um, and if it doesn't work, come back. Mm -hmm. If in six months time you find that you're not happy, we'll have you back. No, no problem about that. So I kind of I, I was cushioned a bit because mm -hmm. a, I'd, I'd got a, a side, you know, six months salary and I had the promise that I could have a job back if it didn't work. But um, and then I still see people from GSK and I go, I'm still here. <laughs> still here. <laughs> now, what are some of the biggest lessons during your journey that you've learned about yourself? Oh, um, that's a hard one, actually. What, what have I learned about myself? There's lots of I've got a million faults. <laughs> it's like everybody else. Um, no. Um, to take time to think quite often when you're running a business it's hard to take time to think and mm. when we when we were running the business as a family business what what used to happen is we'd go on holiday and it's we we'd spend the entire time talking about how the business was going because that was the only time we could find time to actually plan ahead so now uh, you do have to take time to think and plan and look at the options and of where your business is going um uh i've learned to be much better at suffering fools because I don't suffer fools <laughs> lightly sometimes, you know, if and, and if data aren't right. Now, I've, you have to learn the diplomacy of explaining to the client that, you know, what they've got is a string vest rather than a woolly jumper. And where we're trying to aim for is a woolly jumper. Um, and, you know, the piece of data that they've given you really isn't worth the paper it's written on or or indeed the other way around. You know, they give you something and you and you're just bowled over by it you know you think wow this is fantastic love to work with these people keep going with these people because the quality of what they generate is is really good but you mm. do see you know always well, like in any business you'll see some stuff that's that's really quite flaky and you think well you know that's got to be improved and and that's our role it's quite hard sometimes when you're given something by a company who think they've given you the bee's knees in a in a submission and it's not and then yeah. going back and saying, well, you know, this bit's good, <laughs> but this bit isn't. <laughs> and I would strongly advise you that you do this and this in order to get it right. So uh, I've, diplomacy is something that I have to think about sometimes. Yeah. So I'm too honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is something that other industries could learn from your industry? Oh, dear. Um, <clears throat> well, I think. I think the pharmaceutical industry uh, is cutting edge on the one hand and old fashioned on the other. And so, you know, there's a lot that the pharmaceutical industry could learn from other industries. And there's a lot that other industries could learn from the pharmaceutical industries. I think people um, 
I always find, you know, if you go to, go somewhere for a meeting or something, and you say, they say, what do you do? And you say, I work in regulatory affairs. You can see the metal shutters coming down <laughs> as soon as you say that because, because they're thinking, God, that must be boring, you know, without them, yeah. without them realizing that it's not. <laughs> Um, and I think uh, there's fear in other industries of the regulations and so on, you know, mm. uh, and and people people then get that rabbit in the headlights uh, feeling, you know, they go, oh, there's all this paperwork that I've got to get through instead of saying, OK, right, count to 10, read it through and then just get on with it. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are some industries that 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 fear regulation and they cut corners too much and so on. But on yeah. the other hand, the pharmaceutical industry could learn a, lo a lot from manufacturing about how to streamline things, other manufacturing industries and, and about, for example, medicines are mostly manufactured at the moment and then they're tested at the end um, mm. to see that they're all right. But you could actually test some of the features of the medicine during the manufacturing process um, and it's called parametric release. Uh, and mm -hmm. release it afterwards and, and that's what's applied in, in Formula One and the the biscuit manufacturing industries and things like that. And there's no reason why it couldn't apply to lots of medicines as well. Yeah. Wow. If there's only one lesson that you could teach, what would it be? Oh, now no, that's a really hard one. You never lose your curiosity. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Never, you, never lose your curiosity. Um, uh, never lose your positivity either because uh, because i've got a sign on my my door which says you know um it, it, life isn't about um uh, waiting for the storm to pass it's about learning to dance in the rain and i really really believe that i think that's really important you know everybody and particularly in the over the last 12 months for example with the covid situation and everything else we've all had to learn to dance in the rain mm. and and uh, actually it's quite good fun it is, isn't it? <laughs> it's the first thing I want to do when there's a big storm is go outside. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, it's important. I think, you know, um, uh, when you're running your own business, it, there is a weight of responsibility. I, you know, I, I never I, I never feel that, that I should, you know, take for granted the fact that there are lots of people that rely as a business. We 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 obviously employ people and and their salaries, you know, pay into the local communities wherever people are and so on so we're we're each of us helping the the local economy and I never forget that sort of weight of responsibility that sits with us all the time yeah the institute of directors is in the heart of all major cities and continue to represent your point of view as a business leader both locally and nationally our objective is to ensure that your views are taken into account when the government is reviewing policy, legislation, or seeking the opinions of the wider business community. If you're interested in joining the IOD, please visit www.iod.com. Join the conversation and share your thoughts on today's episode by engaging with us on Twitter or joining the LinkedIn group. <laughs>